0: If you turn your Bibles to John chapter nineteen, we're going to take a fairly large passage of Scripture, and, and the reason uh, for that is uh, we're we're going through a part of what we would normally uh, call Passion Week or the Easter story. And so, for the purpose of not uh, hovering here, when we will do that uh, during the Easter season, we're going to look at uh, a number of verses today, probably more than we would normally try and tackle on a Sunday morning. But I think we can. I do this we've been a little bit long on all three uh, previous two services, and so uh, but I'd ask you to to join with me as we as we look at three gospel truths three essential things because in our walks as Christians it is imperative that we believe in a very specific Lord Jesus uh, he was the one that was foretold in the old testament uh, four hundred and eighty six little windows into the life of Messiah that are found throughout uh, the Old Testament, specifically the prophetic works. And so the writings of Isaiah and Daniel and Zechariah going all the way back to the first prophetic word we find in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, this this one who would be the, the seed of the woman. We have a picture of Jesus that contains essentials to our faith, what we would call an orthodox Christian view things that we would be in agreement with if we were in a Methodist church or a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church or an Anglican church. These are essentials. Jesus Christ is absolutely a singular person. He's not the one that perhaps someone who believes in Islam would tell you is just one of God's prophets. They believe that Jesus is a prophet but they do not believe that Jesus is God's only son. In fact, they don't believe that Jesus even is a son of God because God has no sons. So when you talk about Jesus, when we talk about Jesus, we are specifically referencing exactly one God-man. Fully God and fully Man. In our passage, as we finish up chapter 19, he is the God-man who is going to die on Calvary's cross. He is going to be crucified, foretold in the Old Testament. That's how he would die. And that he would be buried. And so three essential truths. Would you join me? We'll pray. We'll pick up in verse 17, and we'll finish chapter 19 today. Father, we thank you that you sent your only begotten Son into this world, Lord, that through you Jesus this world might be saved, or your sacrifice on that old rugged cross, your blood that was shed, as you cried out to tell us die, Lord finishing the work of redemption, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word that we would see you high and lifted up, Lord. The only solution to man's sin problem is you, Jesus. We thank you for that truth. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Verse 17, and he, of course that he being Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. Jesus is going to be taken to the very highest point of Mount Moriah, Uh, the same mountain upon which Abraham offered Isaac and there is only one high point in all of Jerusalem though the topography of the city of Jerusalem has changed over the last several thousand years. Uh, We're going to take a, a look at where that might be where they crucified him, the first truth. The Old Testament prophet David, Moses as he would write in the Korah, the first five books would declare that there would be one eventually who would be lifted up on a pole. If you would simply look at him, you would live. These pictures of Messiah who would come. Jesus had to be crucified. Jesus had to die and Jesus had to be buried. These things were declared in David's case a thousand years before Jesus was even born. And so if any of these points are missed, you have the wrong Jesus, you have the wrong Messiah, you do not have the Son of God. And so these things are essentials to our faith, essential to orthodox Christian faith. And two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center, and now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And then many Jews read the title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city For it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. And it was more than near the city. It was just outside the northern city walls. Today it would be located outside of the Damascus Gate but during that day and time, it was actually at the crossroads. It's very likely that the spot that's being referenced here was at the very point at which the road north to Damascus left the city, the road directly to the east that would veer to the south, the Jericho Road would ha- head towards the Jordan River Valley, and the road to the west that would go to Jaffa on the coast or to Caesarea Maritima, which was a little further north, Those roads all left from this place. And the reason that's important to us is because we live in a day and time where if someone were to commit a heinous crime and they were to be given the death penalty, we operate in a very clinical environment with regard to capital punishment today. And in fact, no one, save maybe a family member or two, a couple of witnesses, the medical team, and those involved in the care of that person who's being put to death would even see it. And in fact, we generally use what we call lethal injection, which is a cocktail of multiple drugs. The first one basically puts the person to sleep and then slowly decreasing their heart rate and finally their respirations causing them to perish. It's very clinical, extremely private, and rightly so. But during that day and time, it would be the equivalent is if we thought up the worst thing that we could possibly do to somebody, and then we took them to the intersection of the 10 and the 405 and did it there. Thousands upon thousands of people driving past, or in this case, walking past, riding a donkey past, leading a camel caravan past. But this would be the crossroads of a major thoroughfare, and it is there that you find the hill of Golgotha a very public place where Jesus not only would be seen, he would be seen by everyone coming and going from the city of Jerusalem. So if you wanted to make a public spectacle of someone, if you wanted to lift them up, you would put them on the high point of the Mount of Zion, which was the other edge of the Temple Mount, and you would put them at a place where they would be visibly seen by those departing the city. It is there that we find Jesus on the cross where they crucified him. And therefore the chief priest, verse 21, of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, King of the Jews. But he said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, you can almost see John's love for Jesus in these words. He's not He can hardly speak. And so with a a quiet heart towards the events, he says they crucified him. The other gospel authors add some additional detail. It's important to read all four gospels' accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus, but for sake of time, today we'll focus in on these final words of John chapter 19. And when they had crucified Jesus they took his garments and made four parts and each soldier a part it was their right as the executioners to divide up the, the spoils of whatever the person brought uh, into the jail cell with them if you will And you can see exactly how this operates and also the tunic now the tunic was without seam and during that day and time someone had a single piece garment was very valuable would have cost them likely about the, the amount of money that you would earn in a year if you worked as a, as a servant. Very valuable, this single-piece woven tunic. Basically, it would look like a potato sack with a hole in it, but it was one piece, traveling down to near uh, the mid-calf. Woven from the top at one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves... Let us not tear it, but let's cast lots for it. Whose it shall be? And John adds in here that it might be fulfilled that the scripture which says they divided my garments among them for my clothing they cast lots. Now I want you to notice something. If you were the Jewish religious leadership, you would have been following Jesus around everywhere he went. Don't do that don't do that, don't do that, don't nail him to a cross, don't divide his garments, don't cast lots for him because that's what the Old Testament prophets said would happen to Messiah. Now notice they are still in the scene, but they are unable to stop what is God's perfect plan. And so one by one, these individual windows that we find in the Old Testament prophetic works are being fulfilled one right after another. The words of the prophet Isaiah come true. The words of David the prophet come true. The words of Zechariah the prophet come true. And each time something else is added to it, the mathematical probability of this being any other than Jesus the Messiah becomes impossible. To the point that ultimately There is no rational way that someone can look at the events in the life of Jesus and see all that happened, everything he did, from where he would be born, who he would be born to, what city he would live in. All of these things foretold in most cases more than 500 years before, in some cases more than 1,000 years before the event, Jesus begins to one by one check every box done and therefore the soldiers did these things and now they're stood by the cross of Jesus' mother and his mother's sister and mary the wife of clopas and mary magdalene it's interesting to me that you have all these ladies that are standing there we're not told where the men are so much for the disciples When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which would be John standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. You see, there's a part of Jesus that was very tender, very human, very compassionate to the point of caring for his own mom. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. We'll pick up the rest of this in a few moments. As we look at these verses, remind yourself that there are some central truths that we as Christians all hold to. We may disagree on some of the non-essential things of salvation, but there are things that we absolutely agree on. And these three things, that Jesus was crucified, that Jesus did in fact die, and Jesus was buried in the tomb, are very important to us. Because if these things did not happen, then we have the wrong Jesus. But we have the right Jesus. And we're going to see that in John's own testimony. The first essential that we see here is that Jesus was in fact crucified. Now, crucifixion was not actually invented by the Romans, Crucifixion was invented by the Carthaginians. It was passed along to the Medes, to the Persians, and then made its way back to the Romans. The Phoenicians, which lived in modern-day Lebanon on the coast of Tyre and Sidon, actually were the ones that really kind of came up with the idea of putting somebody on a cross. But that didn't happen until about 500 B.C. And so when the Romans adopted it, they adopted it for a purpose. And it was not because it was so brutal, though they made it more brutal than they received the the basic punishment from the Phoenicians. They used it as a way to politically motivate people. And so they crucified people when they wanted to make a spectacle out of them. They would take them to a very prominent intersection and when they didn't want whatever that person was doing to happen again, they would crucify them. And they would put on the cross the titulus. It was basically a sign. Now I want you to notice what's up there. It's not actually a crime. It just says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That was not a crime under Roman law. Because Pilate had already said, he's innocent. So as he is put to death, he is put to death for the reason the Jews wanted him punished, which was, he was their king. Which was true. He was their king. Now if you wanted to make a statement with somebody, and you're going to crucify them, you're going to do it at the busiest intersection in Jerusalem... You need to do it in an international way. So what do they do? They write the sign out in three languages. They do it first in Hebrew, actually Aramaic, which is a Paleo-Hebraic language, very similar to Hebrew, which was the language of religion. They also wrote it in Greek, which was the language of philosophy or thought, and they also wrote it in Latin, which was the language of law. And so if you came by and you had a philosophical bent, you could read it in Greek. If you came by and you had a legal reason, well, it obviously must be a crime. I mean, there's, he did something really bad to be here. You could read it in Latin. And if you were religious, if you were Jewish, in other words, or you spoke Aramaic, there it would be in Hebrew. So no matter what place you came from, if you rejected Jesus for most of the reasons that we still see Jesus rejected today, well, you know, I don't know about this whole law thing. I don't know about this whole philosophy thing. I'm not sure that religiously I want to only have one way to heaven. You could have read it in your own language. For all the world to see, on a small hill outside of the Damascus Gate, at the edge of Mount Zion called Golgotha. We don't know that this exact picture that you see here was in existence at the time of the Lord, but it is pretty likely because that is the tallest point of Mount Zion. Topography has been changed and in some places graded. There's a bus parking lot to the right of that picture and to the left, we're going to see that there was a tomb And a garden that was nearby. The only place in the whole city of Jerusalem where there is a hill with a tomb and a garden nearby is this spot. And whether it is the spot or not, I think most of us are hesitant to say that we know that we know. But it fits all of the criteria. And so here... Jesus is taken outside of the city because he would have to be taken outside of the city because to be crucified, number one, you were a criminal. Number two, you would have been bloodied. And number three, you would be dead. All of those things were unclean. It's Passover. And he's at the intersection of the road to Damascus, which is about 50 feet out of that photo, takes off to the north. The road to Jericho, which goes to the east, or the road to Jaffa, which would go to the right side of that photo. Left side, excuse me. Directly adjacent to it, you can walk between the two. And in fact, when we travel there, uh, you make one stop. It's at the garden tomb. And at the edge of that garden is the other side of the extension of the same mount that is the temple mount, not Moriah. There Jesus was crucified Stuck on a pole, lifted up, this shrewd politician, without even realizing it, writes a gospel tract. Can you imagine? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's a gospel tract. Because if you get the Jesus part right, his name means Yehoshua, is. God is our salvation. He's from Nazareth. The place that the apostles declared he would be from. And he was the king of the Jewish people. And their king was always to be the Messiah. The Messiah was the high priest. And so basically they're saying, here he is. Here's Messiah. And there Jesus hung on that cross remember he was numbered with the transgressors he was situated between two common criminals now i'm pretty sure if the jews had anything to do with it they would have made sure he didn't he, they would have found someone else or crucified him alone because the prophet isaiah in isaiah 53:12 said he would be numbered with the transgressors number 1 a criminal number 2 jesus number 3 another criminal And Jesus between them, which is exactly what your Bible says, six hundred and eighty six years before Jesus set foot on the earth, what happened to him? Here Jesus is between two thieves. Psalm twenty two says that those guards would cast lots for his clothing. You don't think the Jewish people, the religious leaders, the Pharisees were going, "Man, you cannot get here, just take everything. It's fine. Don't gamble for it." Because David said that's what you we can't have you doing that right now. This area is off limits to gambling. And yet we have recorded for us by an eyewitness that that's exactly what happened. There's an essential number 2. Jesus actually died. This is really important. Because there were people then, there are people now that say Jesus must not have died. You see, no one could produce a body. There was no ossuary, no bone box with Jesus' bones in it. The tomb is empty, amen? Verse 28, and after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that Scripture might be fulfilled... What scriptures is he talking about? Can I just remind you, they didn't have any New Testaments then? He's actually writing, if you will, with his life at this moment, what we would call the New Testament. So the only scriptures Jesus could possibly be referring to, John could be referring to, anyone who was talking at that point in time about the scriptures could be referring to, is what we call the Old Testament. That was finished 400 years before Jesus landed on the earth as a babe in a manger, by the way. So what scriptures? He said, I thirst. Can I tell you that the 69th Psalm says that Messiah would say, I thirst? And now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled the sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus received the sour wine, he said a single word. In Aramaic, translated into Greek, "I, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He died. But he wasn't murdered in that sense. He gave his life a ransom for many. He willingly surrendered his life. Yes, he was beaten, and yes, he died. But he surrendered his life for you, for me, for anyone who will believe in his name. Jesus said, I'll give up my life. Jesus is dead. He had just emerged from three hours of darkness after submitting himself to these six illegal trials where the sins of the world, your sin and mine, were heaped upon him. He's now been nailed to the cross. You, you see, we see the cross as a sign of victory, but then it was still an implement of torture. He is now nailed to that cross. And of course, there's physical reasons for his thirst. But if you've ever met someone who's dying of thirst, it actually can seal their lips together to the point to where they they get what we call cotton mouth and they can no longer speak. There's no moisture. Their, Their tongue can't move. It's so dry. And Jesus has been beaten nearly to death. but it didn't keep him from shouting some words of victory. Amen? And so the sour wine, he didn't take the wine mingled with myrrh to deaden the pain, but he does take this soured grape juice, this wine. And from that, he's able to say these final seven things that he utters from the cross. And I want you to see them. And for sake of time, I mean, we do a whole series on these One study per statement. But for today, the first thing Jesus says, can you imagine? Father, forgive them. For they don't know, they don't have a clue. They don't know what they're doing. They they may even think that somehow this is the right thing to do. Jesus' first words is, Father, don't hold this against them. The very thing that Stephen would cry out. "I'll, I'll bear the penalty of their sin. Father, you just forgive them. Ever wondered if God loves you? The very first thing that Jesus utters from the cross is, Father, forgive them. The second thing. And for those of you, maybe you come from a doctrinal dispensation where you feel like there are some other things necessary for you to be saved. I I hope I can settle this for you today. The second thing that Jesus utters from the cross, to the thief, and I want you to notice what the thief didn't do. He never went to catechism. He never had communion. He wasn't confirmed. He never gave, never went on a mission trip. He didn't own a Bible, didn't attend a church. He was never baptized. What does Jesus say to him? Man, I am so bummed. You're just not going to be able to be with me in paradise because we, you know, you're just not coming down off of here. I mean, I'm really sorry, but I mean, you, you got to be baptized, you're going to be saved. No, he doesn't say that at all, does he? That's because you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and nothing else. Amen? He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Not if you manage to go to purgatory and spend a couple thousand years because, man, you're a criminal. I mean, after all. Today, this very day, when you take your last breath, Mr. Thief, you can be assured that you're gonna be with me in paradise. Man, praise the Lord. He says to his mother, behold your son. Can I tell you that Jesus cares about the little details of your life, the things that you're going through, the fa- the fact that maybe Christmas for you is a hard time? You know, Christmas for some of us, Christmas for your pastor, is sometimes not easy. You've been through that pains of divorce and separated families and all the craziness that our world and our lives lived apart from God often bring into our our families. sometimes we wonder if God actually cares about those little things God loves you and God cares about those relationships in your life and he knows exactly who to put into your life to make up for the fact that you don't have a mom he cares how about the fourth one Eloi, Eloi, Father, Father, Lama, Sabakhtane. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, God the Father had to turn the back on Jesus the Son, He had to look away because God can't look on sin. So we know that Jesus took the weight of the sins of the world because the Father turned his back on the Son. That's why Jesus, "Where are you, Dad?" For the first time in eternity, the fellowship between Father and Son was broken while Jesus bore your sins. And the final three things all pertain to who you are as a human being. Jesus had a physical body, just like you. And that physical body thirsted. He cries out from his soul, from his, from his mind, from his thinking, from his consciousness, from who he was, he cries out, the telestai, it is finished. And then in his spirit, the part that is, connects us with eternal things, because you are a body, you are a mind and a consciousness, or a spirit, or a soul, excuse me, and a spirit. From that third part, he says, Dad, I'm coming home. But I want to focus in for just a, a minute on one of those seven things. Jesus finished the work. You know, some people, I think, still to this day, try and save themselves. They're figuring, I got, it's got to be harder than believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's got to be more to it. And while there is more to it in sanctification and maturation and things that happen to you, when you recognize who you are in Christ, your life is going to change. But that change comes from the inside. And that change happens because Christ died for you. He finished it, so he cries out this single word to tell us Now for some of you like, well, okay, it's finished. But it helps to understand it from the perspective in which it was written. Because if you were alive during that day, here's what would happen to you. If you were a master and you had servants or you had people who worked for you, when they were sent out into the field, and as they go into the field, and they do their daily tasks because, by the way, Jesus was the suffering servant of Yahweh. So the servant, when he went out into the field, when he would come back to the master, at the end of his day, he would say, to tell us Everything you gave me to do is done. But wait, there's more. You see, the high priest, when the high priest would accept a sacrifice from someone and they would take it to the altar to be offered up on the altar, when they would take the sacrifice, because Jesus Christ is also the Passover lamb sacrificed before the foundation of the world, when he would take the sacrificial lamb and offer it, he would raise his hands and say, Guess what? To tell us, die. It is finished, it's done. It's been accepted. By the way, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. He is our high priest forever, amen? But wait. When an artist, because you are his poema, you're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus... Four good works that you should walk in them, when an artist would be working on any type of work of art, whether it's statuary or a painting, the final brush stroke guess what he says? The tell us die. It's finished. There's no more strokes necessary on this. But wait. An author. When he would work on a work instead of getting to the end and you write, the end, fiend, an author would say, when the last sentence is written, die." But wait. There's one more and it's the best one. Let's say you went in and back then, Remember Jesus was a carpenter, amen? Probably made rudimentary chairs and tables and things like that. When you wanted a chair, you couldn't go, you know, over to Bob's wholesale furniture and pick one up. You couldn't go to Ashley Home Stores, you couldn't go to Costco and get one off the rack, bring it home and put it in your house. You went and contacted a carpenter. What was Jesus? A carpenter. You contacted a carpenter, and you asked them to build something for you. But you gave them a deposit, which, by the way, is exactly what the Holy Spirit says the Holy Spirit is. Your guarantee, your deposit, your wedding ring, that one day the bridegroom is coming from heaven. We'll skip that part. But you give a deposit. And then once the chair was done you would go back and turn in the final payment and guess what the carpenter would say to tell us die the debt is paid in full so when jesus is on the cross and we hear these simple words it is finished what he's really saying is the servant did all that the master send him to do the high priest has accepted the sacrifice there's nothing left to sacrifice the artist has finished the work he who began that good work is faithful to complete it unto the day of christ jesus amen the writer who wrote your life he knows the number of your days He's assigned them for you before there were yet any. He's authored the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come. He's written your story. He knows it. But the best thing of all, your debt's been paid in Christ Jesus. It's erased. There's nothing else owed. Amen? My debt is paid in full. That's why Jesus could be buried. There was nothing left to do. Jesus was buried because the story was done. Sacrifice was offered. The debt was paid. His blood was spilled. Verse 31, and we'll wrap this up. And therefore, because it was a preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. This was actually a Sabbath of Sabbaths. So on a high holy day, Passover, Yom Kippur, the the Sabbath started a day early. And so here it is the Sabbath of Sabbaths. And so they didn't want to have anybody because they were unclean. If someone walked by, if they accidentally came in contact, they wanted the bodies down off the crosses. So the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, they might be taken away. Now I want you to notice something here. If you're a Jew, you would really want Jesus' legs broken because if on your Seder plate today, you would notice there's an unbroken lamb shank bone on there, the reason being the book of Exodus plainly declared that there would be not one bone broken of Messiah. So the Jews are going, we got it. We'll have him break the legs of the criminals that are on the cross, including Jesus, and so they'll break the first thief, and then they'll do Jesus, and then they'll do the other thief, and he's not the Messiah. Because if there's anything that happens to Jesus... That now is a problem with the prophets, because one of the testimonies of a prophet, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 18, they kind of have to be right hundred percent of the time, amen? amen. So you got a problem. You either have the wrong person or you got the prophet's a mess. So if the prophet's right, then if Jesus' legs are broken, he's not the Messiah. So they're going, We got this. Break his legs. And the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. Now bear in mind the penalty for not carrying out an order was death. So here are these professional Roman guards who've been given exactly one task, go break the legs of three people. You see the reason being is the stirrup that's on that cross was on there for a reason. Because a crucified person normally did not die from the wounds that they received, and in fact, they could live for days on the cross. The stirrup was put there so that they could continue to breathe because the lungs would fill with fluid and blood, water and blood. Guess what comes out? Water, our sanctification, blood, our redemption. But Jesus is lifting himself up so he can breathe. So they broke the legs of the other two guys, so they died. But what happened with Jesus? He gave up his life. There was no need. He was already gone because he chose when he was going to take his last breath. He did it for you. He did it for me. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they did not break his legs. But then they did the unthinkable. They did exactly what they weren't supposed to do, which they pierced this... Side, and immediately water and blood came out. Now notice verse 35. If you ever get in a situation where you're in court and there's, there's something that's happened, the most valuable witness you can have is an eyewitness, someone who actually saw the events. Notice what John says. And he who has seen has testified, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. John's saying, I saw these things and he would live to be 90 years old and testified continually so much so that it lands him in prison on the island of Patmos for the word of his testimony. These things were done, the scripture should be fulfilled, that not one of his bones should be broken and another scripture that they shall look on him whom they pierce. So Zachariah's prophecy Isaiah's prophecy, the prophecy of Exodus of the Passover lamb, each piece, one right after another is another thing saying, Messiah, King of kings, Lord of lords. Praise God for the precision of scripture, amen? It's an interesting article in this month's National Geographic. I encourage you to read it and you'll see exactly the fight over the scriptures. Still battling today. And guess who's winning? The Lord God in heaven. And just so you know, I don't know if you guys saw this article. There was an article, I believe it came out uh, less than a week ago, that they may well have actually found the signet ring of Pontius Pilate in a fortress in Israel. Who are you going to believe? An eyewitness who gave his life for that testimony? Or a bunch of guys 2,000 years later whose goal and motivation is, oh, we really don't want to be answering to this God that you serve. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly remember his story. you got to love Joseph of Arimathea. Bright guy, a brilliant guy, a rich guy. Comes to Jesus, John chapter 3 is his story, Amen. Well, you know, I don't want people to know just yet, but boy, did he come into the light. And now that faith is at work in his life because faith without works is dead, amen? He's putting his faith to work here. He might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. makes no sense at all. Because if they just take Jesus' body down off the cross and throw it in the city dump like they do the rest, then the animals would take care of the whole situation. Pilate would have been done, the Jews would have been done, everyone would have been done, but inexplicably. Oh, wait a second. It's not inexplicable because the prophet Isaiah actually said in Isaiah 53 that he would be laid to rest with the rich in his death. Crucified with criminals, but laid to death laid to, to rest, buried in a tomb with the rich. Exactly what the prophet Isaiah said. And so they brought the mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices, as was the custom of the Jews to bury. And now the place where he was crucified was a garden. There was a guard, in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. You see, we, we look at graves as a final resting place and we, we pay lots of money for them, in fact, you know, so that you can have a nice place to go, you know, visit your, your, your loved one and remember. But back then it wasn't so. A tomb was actually a place of decay. You were placed in a tomb usually for a year or two. Your body was prepared primarily so it wouldn't smell. And you were stuck in there so that your flesh would decompose and all that would be left is your bones and then they would use the tomb again. They'd pull your bones together with the grave clothes and just put it right inside of an ossuary or a bone box and then sometimes that ended up in people's homes. You might be sitting on Uncle Bob. (laughs) It's like, we loved him. Jesus is put in this tomb. But that tomb's not going to hold him exactly what David said. Because he's not there. It's still empty. I've been inside of it. Actually, I've been to both of them. So if it was one or the other, he's not neither. I can tell you that. And so there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. There comes Joseph and Nicodemus. And as we wrap this up, God's grace is poured out in these two men's lives as they come to terms with what we have to come to terms with. You see, I can tell you what Scripture says about Jesus. I can recount to you the, the myriads of proof that exist, scripturally that Jesus fits all the criteria for Messiah. But what I think... Actually, he's not going to get you into heaven. You have to believe with your own heart and believe in your own mind that Jesus is who he says he is. All I can tell you is there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. All I can tell you is he changed my life. All I can tell you is after studying the Old Testament and actually teaching a college class on Christ and the Prophets, I haven't come up with a single thing that Jesus didn't fulfill in all of those messianic windows that are in the Old Testament. All 486 of them fulfilled in the life of one man, Jesus of Nazareth. So for me, that's my savior. He's my Lord. The only question is, is he your savior and your Lord? For Nicodemus, He's my Savior. He's my Lord. For Joseph of Arimathea, he's my Savior. He's my Lord. For a vast majority of us in this sanctuary today, he is our Savior and our Lord. Because the tomb's empty, he's not there. But we do know where he is. He's seated at the right hand of God, the throne of majesty right now, this very moment, interceding for you. Praying for you. Inviting you by his grace to come into a right relationship with him. And for those of us that already know him, we get the beautiful privilege of living that abundant life that he's called us to. So, I want to encourage you. Make sure you have the right Jesus. He's not Lucifer's elder brother. Can tell you that. And he is the son that Islam says God doesn't have. He's also not the teacher that is supposed to be a compliment to Buddha. He's a true and the living God. He is Emmanuel, he's God with us. And he died on Calvary's cross to say it's finished. So that you can have eternal life. Would you stand with me and we'll close in prayer. And I want to give you an opportunity. Maybe you came today. Maybe you came today. And your view of Jesus was he was this biblical character that people say existed 2,000 years ago. That's part of the story. But he's also God's own son who came to this earth to die in your place so you could have eternal life. And if you will believe in him, you shall be saved. Just like the thief on the cross. So if you'd bow your heads with me and close your eyes, please. And if you're here today and you know the Lord, I'm going to just simply ask you to pray for those who don't that are likely in this room right now. And if you're here today and you're saying, Jeff, you know, I just... I never really even considered who Jesus was. But in hearing this, uh, I wanted to be my Savior. I want him to be my Lord. Would you all pray for those people right now? If that's you today, and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior, and you want to do that before you leave this building, I'm going to ask you to do something very simple, and that's just raise your hand right where you're at. Because I want to pray with you that you would receive the gift of grace, and the forgiveness of your sin, that your life would be forever changed. If that's you, just slip your hand up. doesn't matter where you are in the sanctuary. I see that hand in the middle. Praise God. Anyone else? Be bold, because there's only one name under heaven whereby men may be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. That's why he came. Anyone at all? Anyone else? Believers, pray anyone else I can tell you this the angels in heaven are warming up a choir right now for the one that comes to faith so one more or one step closer to heaven raise your hand I see that hand as well anyone else for those that raise your hand if you just Follow me, very simple prayer. It's got to come from you. I can help with the words, but they need to be from your heart to God's ears. You just repeat after me, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus into this world. I realize that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And Jesus, I'm inviting you to be my Savior and my Lord. I'm asking you to forgive my sin to cleanse me from my unrighteousness and to write my name in the Lamb's book of life in heaven. I thank you for saving me. I ask that you would help me to serve you all of my days. Change me from the inside out. Cause me to live my life for you. My life is yours. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.